Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries, and I want to welcome you to another Sabbath teaching from the Torah. Uh, we are continuing our study through the Torah this year, and we are at the final portion of the book of Genesis. And so our portion is going to begin in chapter 47 at verse 28. It's in the Hebrew, we call this Vayeki, and it means, and he lived. And it's really talking about Jacob uh, after he made his journey to Egypt with his sons. Joseph had brought them down. And now it's the, the end of, of Jacob's life. And it's going to address uh, some of the final blessings uh, from Jacob that will be upon uh, Joseph and his sons, upon the rest of the sons of Jacob. And it's a very powerful portion in terms of kind of bringing the story of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to a conclusion and setting the stage for the rest of the nation of Israel to go forth. And of course, in the next portion uh, will be Exodus, and that's about how God will raise up the nation and bring the nation of Israel out of Egypt. So let's proceed. We're now at chapter 47 again, as I said, in verse 27, and it says... Now Israel, Jacob, lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. As a result of Jacob and his children coming down into Egypt, um, this worked out well for them. Joseph's plan to bring them down and provide for them, they came down and they were highly, highly successful. One of the things that has been noted throughout history is that wherever the Jewish people have been, uh, have gone to in foreign lands, if a community of them forms up, they generally are very successful. They generally are to the point where they build businesses and they have homes and their families, they prosper, they multiply. And we see the first example of that for Israel here down in Egypt. They went to Egypt and they prosper, they do well, and increase. And as the children of Israel have been scattered through all the nations throughout the, the ages, we see that activity still taking place. It's still showing God's hand is upon Israel. His blessing is still on him, even though they are in the hands of their enemies, even though they're living in strange lands. So it says, um, you'll notice here, and they acquired property in it. If you remember back uh, in the previous teachings, that one of the things that happened to the Egyptians because of the famine with uh, Joseph, they sold all their property. They sold it to, to Pharaoh so they would have food. But here are the children of Israel living in the land of Egypt, and they're the ones buying it back. And this is one of the things that is going to irritate, to a certain extent, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the reason why they'll turn against is because they see them prospering and there is a degree of envy. When you purchase land, when you purchase your own home, the, those that are without tend to look at almost like, how did you get that? How is that possible for you? I haven't been able to enjoy that. And it, and it can be exploited into envy. And we're going to see a change of heart uh, at the conclusion of this book where um, the Egyptians are going to be happy to get rid of 
the Israelites, even though they're doing well and prospering there. All right, so that's just for future reference. Uh, verse 29, when the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, please, if I have found favor in your sight, place your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry um, me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial places. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. That is a very significant statement. And the reason is because if you go back to Genesis 37, 10, Remember Joseph's second dream, the sun and the moon and the stars, they bowed down to my star. Jacob instantly understood that the sun represented him, the moon represented the mothers, and the stars represented his brethren. And so the dream said there would be a day coming when Jacob would bow down to Joseph. And uh, if you'll recall, back in that passage in Genesis earlier, he was a little upset by that. that. That bothered him. But it said that he pondered all of this in his heart, which means he remembered it. Now, here he is in Egypt. He's coming to the end of his life. He recognizes what Joseph has done for him and for the family, preserving them, keeping them, and so forth. And in honor and respect to him, he bows down. Now, in my Bible, they add the words in worship. Uh, that is, I don't think that's appropriate for there to be there. Uh, and yet, in my Bible, it's in italics, which means it's been added by the translators. If you just take it straight up, so he swore to him, then Israel bowed at the head of the bed. Well, he bowed to Joseph. And this is what the dream said. Um, I don't believe he was bowing in worship of God. Um, he, was, he bowed his head in honor of uh, Joseph because he's sitting there talking to Joseph. He's asked Joseph to swear something to him, and in response, he's bowing to him. He's submitting himself unto him uh, for it. Uh, that's a very important verse in terms of the fulfillment of Joseph's second dream, uh, being a part of it. So we're now at chapter 48. And now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. And when it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph have come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me in Luz at the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. This is a very interesting, powerful statement. Because Jacob is now taking the two sons of Joseph and elevating them equal to Joseph's brethren. And by, in terms, that elevates Joseph above his brethren. 
by doing that. It's like generationally moves them up. Or Joseph is essentially generationally at the same level as Jacob himself. Now, why in the world would he do that? Why, why do we have this explained to us in the scripture? That's kind of an odd thing, really. Well, it goes hand in hand with our messianic theme. The, the Messiah is supposed to be one of our countrymen who's lifted up above his countrymen. The Messiah is supposed to be elevated to a position where others bow down. And we see the picture of the Redeemer in the life of Joseph. He was sent by the Father to see to the welfare of the brethren and the flock. He, they, they reject him. They throw him in a pit. He comes out of a pit. The next time they get to see him again, he's in charge of the world. And now he's been elevated. He's been recognized as being elevated above his brethren uh, for it. Uh, a very powerful messianic theme for us to remember. I just let me take a pause for a moment. When um, I, you know, when I speak with Christians and I, I come from the same background and I remember all I was taught about Yeshua and how powerful he is and how he's the Messiah and so forth. Uh, a lot of times I did not understand that the word Christ, the word Messiah that's not the last name for Yeshua or Jesus. That's a title. It really should be spoken as Jesus the Christ. Um, it should have a definite article because that's a position. And it should be Yeshua. In the Hebrew, we actually say it that way. Yeshua HaMashiach. Not Yeshua Mashiach. We say HaMashiach, which means Yeshua the Messiah. And in the English, it gets slurred. As a result, um, a lot of people will, they, they hear about Jesus, and it's Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ saved us, and Jesus Christ did that. But they lack, if you will, the understanding of how the prophecy spoke of that he would be amongst us and that he would be elevated above us. And I know a lot of people uh, struggle a little bit with the deity of Yeshua. Was he really man or was he really God? Well, the pattern that's been given in the Torah is he'll be one of our countrymen, but he'll be elevated above and he will be of higher honor. We see this example here uh, with Joseph being elevated above. That means even his sons are made equal uh, to his own brethren. And then he's elevated above his sons and elevated above um, his brethren for it. Uh, so he brings in his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, the sons that he had there. Jacob is recognizing, I didn't even think I was ever going to get to see you again. Not only have I gotten to see you, but I've now also gotten to see your sons. And he's really counting and renumerating back the Jacob's feeling of the incredible blessing that he got from this beloved son, uh, the son of Rachel, his beloved and he's recounting that back to Joseph and showing his admiration. And he does this incredible honorable thing of raising his sons up equal to uh, Joseph's other brethren. And he recounts the promise that God gave to him, that he would make him a great company uh, of people and that they would receive the land uh, in the future. Um, let me take you now to... Um, uh, verse 6, but your offspring 
that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey. And when there was still some distance to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Rachel's tomb is a well-known location in the land of Israel today. If you travel between Jerusalem toward Bethlehem, you will go past Rachel's tomb. And this is a little bit controversial because it's in Palestinian territory. And when Jews try to go there to pray and so forth, it has controversy just like Joseph's tomb does and like the tombs of the fathers in Hebron. These are all contested things today. But the Bible clearly, clearly delineates these belong to Israel and to the descendants of Israel. Verse 8, And when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Uh, and Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given to me. And, and he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Now, I don't know if this is a case of that he was terribly nearsighted uh, or farsighted. We're not quite sure. We know that he had some sort of defect in his vision. He did recognize when Joseph came into him, but he didn't identify Joseph's sons. And it may be, uh, this happens to me, if you, if you don't see your grandchildren uh, often enough, when they suddenly appear, they look like new people to you. You know, because they're growing so fast, they're, they're rising up. And it can be kind of a strange feeling because you've held this child in deep affection and then suddenly they're grown. And you know the, the expression, we all do this, uh, where we'll suddenly see our grandchildren and they've, especially boys, you know, we see them when they're a boy and suddenly they're a young man and we're like, huh? you know, what, what happened here? And Ephraim and Manasseh, have obviously gone from boyhood status up to young man status, you know, at this point. And so he's marveling at that, and he's making comment with regard to it. But personally, I think the reason why some of that kind of information is put in the Bible, where you get this, this very personal dynamic that's going on there and so forth, that to me is some of the evidence uh, that says this is not just a historical text. There is something far more meaningful here, and, it, and it's at a personal level. It's at a level that we can understand and recognize human feelings and human emotions in the midst of God doing great things. And by the way, our lives is a mix both of our emotions and our experiences along with God's great plan for each one of us. We, we, we deal with all of it at the same time. And here's the scripture dealing with all of those things at this particular moment. Um, verse, uh, verse 10. Now the eyes, well, I shared that. Verse 11. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face uh, to the ground. Again, this is another 
effort, this is Joseph now, or excuse me, Jacob is now seeing Joseph again, and he's bowing to him. And he's bowing to him, showing umbrage to uh, Joseph and honor to him. And, and he's now going to bestow a blessing. He knows will on Joseph, but it's really on Joseph's sons that he's going to do it. And Joseph took them, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. So essentially what happened was um, Ephraim and Manasseh were brought up. Now Manasseh is the oldest, so he was placed at Jacob's right hand, and Ephraim was the youngest, so he was placed at Jacob's left hand. The, the right hand is called the strength of a man. That's the primary, the right-handedness is the most common thing for humans, and that's the spiritual expression that's being referred to here. So he positioned him so that when he does the blessing and he lays his head on, this, on the head, why, Jacob can simply go like this, and he can speak the blessing onto them. There's a hand on each one uh, deferring, uh, conferring the blessing. Uh, however, that's not what happens. What happens follows. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. So instead of going like this, he went like this and did it that way. And Joseph is going to think a great mistake is taking place here. Uh, verse 15, and he, bless, and, and, um, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom, now by saying that he blessed Joseph, he's putting this blessing on his sons, in effect putting it on Joseph. And, and uh, he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, and the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and they may grow into a multitude into the midst of the earth. You need to mark this particular part of your scripture, particularly verse 15 and 16. This is one of the most powerful presentations of the parts of God. And you're going to see there are three parts. There's a part for the Father, there's a part for the Son, and there's a part for the Holy Spirit. This is how uh, Jacob said it. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Now, God said to Abraham, come out and I will make you the father of many. The theme is the father. The, the topic is the father. Then the second statement, the God who has been the shepherd all my life to this day. Who's the great shepherd? The Messiah. He's the one who comes to, to his seed to the welfare of the brethren and the flock. A shepherd is the one who's concerned for the flock. So he's a reference to the Messiah. Then he says, verse 16, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. In a reference here, it's the reference to the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord. And we have many instances where we have angels already appearing to the patriarchs. And it's clear 
that they are all reacting and responding to him as though it's God that's with them. And in the same way, you and I will have spiritual experiences and interchanges with the Holy Spirit, and we will refer to it as God. We'll refer to it as the Spirit of God, and it will sometimes appear in the form of an angel to us. The God the Son appeared in the form of Yeshua bodily with us. Um, the Father is not seen, but the Holy Spirit sometimes appears as an angel of the Lord uh, to do things, um, and that's the way it, it gets communicated. We have many instances in the Scripture where this will take place. Now, I mention this. I want you to take note of the three parts that Jacob's going to refer to. He could have just said, the God of my fathers, you know, puts this blessing on you. You know, each one of the fathers got the blessing personally put on him. So he's now putting that same blessing now onto um, uh, his own sons, in this particular case, Ephraim and Manasseh. And the emphasis is the strongest will be upon Ephraim. Now, we all have the blessing of the Lord. Would you agree with that? But sometimes God will call someone out and put an extra blessing or extra anointing on him to accomplish his will. And essentially in this motion here, Ephraim is going to become the greater one. The younger one is going to become the greater one. Just like he was the younger one of Esau and he became greater than Esau. Um, and he says, the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, this blessing specifically about being a multitude is being put on Ephraim. His name, Ephraim, means um, fruitful and bountiful. And there's other references in the scripture where Ephraim being scattered in the nations is being referred to like the fish of the sea, um, which is a reference to say, well, everywhere the sea goes, there's fish, and may he be spread throughout the earth like the fish of the sea. And not just the stars or the sands of the sea, which is for all of us, but it's, there's a specific emphasis on him being like the fish, the multitude in the midst of the earth is a reference to like fish uh, that is in the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for the one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also should become a people, and he also should become great. He's referring to Manasseh, the firstborn of Joseph. Uh, however, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Meaning that Manasseh will be a nation, but Ephraim will become many nations. Um, when we look back at the migration patterns and how the, nor the tribes of Israel, the northern tribes, under the leadership of Ephraim, were taken by the Assyrians and then scattered throughout the world, there is more than sufficient evidence that the sons of Israel have gone to a whole variety of places and that no, whole nations have been formed up of peoples in various lands that seem to have some uh, direct or indirect connection back to Israel. 
I personally believe that uh, the United Kingdom and the United States of America and some other places, uh, there's tremendous evidence that shows that we have many of the descendants of Jacob uh, amongst us, not just Jews, because remember, when we're talking about B'nai Ephraim, Ephraim is different from uh, the house of David and different from the southern kingdom or the Jews. And in this modern messianic movement, we have seen how God has brought back the Torah, remembering the teaching of Moses, and the vast majority of folks that are coming into this messianic movement and wanting to learn about the Torah and learn about Moses and learn about all these things, they're not Jews. They're not like my Jewish brethren. They are people from the nations. Now, personally, I believe that, and I can't speak for anybody individually, but personally, I think there's a good chance that the majority of them probably are the distant sons of Ephraim. They're part of the northern tribes that was under the leadership of Ephraim. Ephraim and Judah are the two leaders of the nation of Israel, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, um, as we see later in biblical history. And so there's a lot of people that come into this messianic movement. They catch wind of the teaching of the Torah. They catch wind of the ancient story of our fathers and about the Exodus and uh, you know what, what God has been doing with the nation of Israel throughout its history, uh, being scattered in the nations and so forth. All of a sudden, you see this kind of a, uh, sometimes we refer to as an unction of the Holy Spirit. Something is motivating them beyond just another theological teaching or another theological point of view. And some are uh, coming in with great spiritual enthusiasm, and they give testimony to how the Spirit of God awakened within them uh, to bring them to this point. And they give attribution to God for doing it. Well, that's God fulfilling His promises. He said He would bring and bring them all back, uh, even though they have stammering lips, you know, can't speak the language, he would still be bringing them back and lead them. And so here is the blessing that's being spoken on Ephraim and Manasseh in particular, uh, in which that Jacob is saying, hey, these two particular sons are going to go out into the world and they're going to be a vast number of people. He's not talking about the rest of his sons. He's talking about Ephraim and Manasseh. He's talking about the descendants of Joseph. And as we all know, it's Ephraim that played a central role in the person of Joshua to bring them all to the land from it. There are some Jews, and I tend to agree with them about this, that the return of the nations uh, in the modern day, while yes, the house of Judah and the Jews have been returning to the land, and by the way, the scripture said that they would be saved first, they would be delivered first to the land. It is very clear, and I've had conversations with uh, Orthodox Jews, they're still looking for B'nai Ephraim to emerge. When they see B'nai Ephraim returning, then they will believe that's a sign of the Messiah's coming back because they believe it's the Messiah that will be bringing and bringing all of the um, scattered of Israel uh, back to the land. Uh, 
In fact, that's one of the major contentions uh, when you sit and talk to a religious Jew as to why they dispute Yeshua being the Messiah. He didn't bring the scattered exiles back. We didn't see him do it. Well, I agree. They didn't see it at that time. Uh, and the reason is because the prophecy specifically said that Judah had to be scattered to the nations also before the Messiah would be bringing them back. And Judah didn't get scattered to the nations until um, the destruction of the temple and the Bar Kokhba revolution. That's when Judah really got dispersed and scattered to the nations. And in these days, in this generation, now we see the house of Judah returning. And so the expectation is there. Not only should the house of Judah be returning, B'nai Ephraim, the sons of Ephraim, they should be returning as well. And that will be when the Messiah fulfills it. Now, one of the things, uh, an interesting conversation, I've said to Orthodox, I said, when you recognize B'nai Ephraim coming back, what are you going to do when they say that the Messiah brought him back and his name is Yeshua of Nazareth? What are you going to say then? And I remember this one Orthodox, he said, well, I'll deal with that when we get there. Uh, they know there's this expectation. They have this sense of it. And we'll just have to see how it plays out. But we have the stage set in our generation more powerfully than all of the previous generations with regard to these incredible prophecies. And oh, by the way, Ephraim coming back appears to be larger than any other tribe, including the entire house of, of um, Judah. Ephraim is still greater in numbers because it's a multitude of nations. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham? I'll make you the father of nations. Ephraim is the one who really makes that promise real uh, for uh, Abraham. Uh, verse 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Notice this is what he's saying. Jacob's telling Joseph, Joseph, you're going to come back to the land uh, that was promised. You're not going to be staying here in Egypt. Just as he had first request, don't leave me here in Egypt. Take me back to the land. He says to Joseph, you too will be going back. <clears throat> and in fact, today in Israel, there's a tomb of Joseph. And it's because the children of Israel, according to the instructions here, brought Joseph back in the Exodus and to be buried in the land. And in fact, Joseph is going to um, pass that same request on to his brothers that the Lord will preserve you. And so, but don't leave me in Egypt. Take me back to the land when you all go back to the land uh, for it. And so we have a tomb of Joseph in the land specifically for it, just like Jacob is buried in the land of Israel at Machpelah at Hebron. So uh, he says, um, verse 22, and I will give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. And this is part of the reconciliation uh, that is being done for Joseph because he suffered such a loss uh, with, um, the, because of his brethren why Jacob is kind of making up to him. He's being reconciled. He said, I'll give you a double portion. In other words, he's regarding Joseph like his firstborn. Now, he was the firstborn of Rachel, but he's now regarding him as firstborn above all the others. Another messianic picture. 
the Messiah is referred to as the firstborn among firstborn brethren. And he is the firstborn symbol of this. He receives the double portion. That's what the firstborn does. In inheritance, he receives a double portion. Um, chapter 49 now. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. Now this is interesting because he's going to put a blessing on his sons. He's coming to the end of his life. He's going to put a blessing on his sons. And he says, but I'm also going to give you hints of what is to come, what, what will be happening. And that study going through this blessing of that particular part of the study of futuristic, in other words, how the prophetic part of what this blessing is. And by the way, all blessings are tend to be prophetic in nature because when you bless somebody, you're speaking to future things for them. And so as he speaks this to them, I've seen a host of studies, I've done some of my own, trying to trace each of the tribes back as to what, what are the things that we know about that tribe when they got to the land of Israel, what, what happened to them, and, and it speaks to these words, it speaks to Jacob's blessing upon it. Let's get into some of the blessings that he get. Verse 2, gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up from your, uh, up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Reuben, if you recall, the firstborn, uh, there was an incident in which that he got together with one of the handmaids and went in and used his father's couch, his bed, in one of the tents that was discovered. And this is a very, very disrespectful thing to do and um, was a, a major problem within the family. And Jacob has not forgotten it. And so Jacob has basically said, when it comes time for blessing, you were in this position of firstborn, but you will not be preeminent. You will not receive um, the benefits of being the firstborn because of what you did, you defiled yourself, you defamed yourself, you lost your inheritance as a result of your behavior. And this term, uh, uncontrolled as water, you know, when water comes splashing out like a watershed, the thing that controls water are th obstacles it runs into. The water itself doesn't control itself. The water just flows wherever the water flows. And it would basically, it's talking about Reuben, didn't have any self-control. He just went wherever the water goes. You know, the opportunity in front of him, he goes there. And that's what tripped him up uh, here in the sin that he did against his father. The opportunity presented itself. He doesn't have enough self-restraint. And here we go. He proceeds to do it. By the way, uh, this is a well-known uh, tradition uh, within um, the history of Israel that when it says that you've lost your preeminent power, there is no prophet of Israel that has ever come from the tribe of Reuben. Now, Reuben does not, that family does not put out prophets and great leaders. Uh, and it's because of this statement being made by Jacob. That's one of the examples of looking into the future. Now, 
again, blessings have to do with future things. And in this particular case, you could say, well, that wasn't very much of a blessing, wasn't it? It was almost a curse. Um, but Jacob's telling them what will be happening to them. He's telling them why it will be happening. And he looks at each of his sons individually, not just as a group, which, by the way, good parents always look at their children individually. Yes, they love all their children and their family and all that, but when it comes to blessing, they bless individually uh, for it uh, to do that. And this is what Jacob is doing here. All right, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. And I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. The tribe of Simeon did not receive a particular plot of land. The tribe of Simeon was hopscotch little spots within the tribe of Judah. The land that was given to Judah, some of, some of those little spots where Simeon was at. But Simeon did not get a contiguous territorial land. Levi, on the other hand, didn't get any land at all. They get to purchase cities because they became the priesthood. Why would God use Levi uh, to be the priesthood? Because these people were prone to violence, bloodshed. Now, if they're prone to violence and bloodshed, maybe we ought to get them in the temple serving the Lord where they can just slaughter animals for us instead of slaughtering men. And so there seems to have been some wisdom here about getting Levi to be the future priesthood uh, from this blessing here as well. By the way, this is an interesting historical fact. Uh, some of the key people who built the atomic bomb you know, weapons of mass destruction, were Kohens. That was their last name. Kohen means priest. They're from the tribe of Levi. The fellow who designed the hydrogen bomb, more than an atomic bomb, was a guy named Kohen, a Levite priest. The guy who designed the neutron bomb was another guy called Kohen, a Levite priest. So if you take the Levites out of the temple and you let them be out in the world, they will come up with weapons that will kill everybody. And that's part of the legacy that we have of the atomic age is it's Levite priests that have built these weapons of mass destruction that the world is faced with. This is what the world gets when you took the temple away from them and you stopped them from being the priesthood. They're going to pay a, a dear price in the future because of that little heavyweight macro poetic justice uh, being discussed there. All right, verse 8, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Isn't that fascinating that Yehuda, the Hebrew name for Judah, means praise. So he's playing off of his name, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies and your father's sons shall bow down to you. The in Judah, they are the de facto leaders of all the nation of Israel, kings, uh, King David, King Solomon. They come from the tribe of Judah. 
and the Messiah comes from the tribe of Judah, the king of all of Israel, the king of kings. That's what he's making reference to. This is the lineage of the Messiah. He's the fourth son in line. Number four always carries a numerical theme about the Messiah. So he's in that fourth in the line. I want you to take note of here where it says, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. There's a little bit stronger expression to that. It means that Judah, when facing the enemies of Israel, will go at them face to face. It doesn't mean they'll hit them from the back. They'll go at them face to face, and they'll reach out with their hand and clutch them by the throat. And it's saying that Judah will be that kind of a warrior. He'll be right in the face of the enemy and grab him right by the throat. And that's what that blessing is there for it. And as you know, we have an example uh, today, a modern-day example, besides all that we've seen in history. The IDF, which are many descendants of Judah, is one of the most powerful armies in the world. And particularly in the Middle East, probably the most powerful army. And it's because they know how to get into the face of their enemy. They're, they're full of courage. They're not afraid. Uh, and they have many testimonies of how um, the IDF have fought. And I believe it's part of the fulfillment of what Jacob said that would be unto Judah. And Judah is a lion's whelp. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares to rouse him up? Uh, again, this is a reference to the, Judah, the lion of Judah. This is where we get part of that expression. And it means that he's the king of the beasts, and when you hear a lion whelp, when you see him do his big roar, you know, like the MGM lion roars and so forth, that's toned down. If you're in person and you're out in the, in the sticks and there's lions out there and you hear a lion roar, first of all, you can hear it from five miles away. When you hear it, I guarantee you it's bone chilling. Uh, it will grip you. I, I've shared this story about when I was a young sailor, went to visit the Tacoma Zoo one day on Liberty and uh, we went by the lion's cage and the big daddy lion stood up and did one of those MGM roars. It literally, he's behind the cage, I mean, completely safe. Just the incredible volume and the, the sound, it put tears in my eyes because I was instantly afraid, um, you know, from that. And I saw other people panicking and so forth. That's a reference to what it says, how Judah will be before his enemies. He'll actually cause the enemies, I believe, to be filled with fear uh, when they have to come and fight him. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. There's a bit of a dispute. Um, Shiloh, we believe, is a reference to, to um, the Messiah, and it really has to do, there's a little more inference it talks about the gift of the land, and it talks about the proportioning of the land until Shiloh comes when the Messiah proportions the land uh, to the tribes, uh, which is the greater Israel uh, prophecies tying it together for it. And so what the reason why we look for the Messiah to come from the tribe of Judah is from this prophecy of Jacob. Now, it's going to go down a little bit further 
And uh, we're going to go through the other sons. I'm not going to go through every one of them. But I do want to take you to this one, which is Joseph. So in verse 22, it says this, that Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. Now, what that's referring to is that there's a wall and you have a tree. And the tree grows up to where the branches extend over the wall. And they're full of fruit. And the, the, the bough is very heavy with fruit. Ephraim means bountiful and fruitful. And so Jacob is, again, speaking a blessing on Joseph, which is really upon Ephraim and Manasseh at this point. He's speaking the blessing on him, and he's making reference to Ephraim's name and the meaning of his name. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. It's well known that the tribe of Ephraim had the greatest archers in the army of Israel. That they were the guys who were the archers when you had swords and shields and spears and so forth. Ephraim were the great archers of the tribe. In fact, there are some who claim that the Scythians, uh, which is another foreign nation, who were great archers who rode on horses, and so forth, that that was probably some of the offspring of Ephraim. Uh, that was in a part of that nation, that they had that skill because of that. Now, I want you to take note of the next uh, couple of sentences and words here, because again, this is going to be another reference to where we're going to see the three parts, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the blessing being spoken on Joseph. Why? Because Joseph is the picture of the messianic themes. Here's what it says. This is verse 24. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head who won, who distinguished himself among his brothers. Again, those are words that have to do with the Messiah being elevated above the other brethren. But I want you to go back to verse 24. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Who is that specifically within the parts of God? Who is that? That's God the Father, the mighty one of Jacob, the mighty one of Abraham. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now, that's interesting. Who's the shepherd? Well, we talked about that this last time. It's a picture of the Messiah. And, but then the title, the stone of Israel, how does that tie into the Messiah? Well, the word there, if you go looking in the Hebrew for stone, is the word eben. And eben is a contracted word. It's the word av put together with the word ben. Av is father, ben is son, becomes eben. It's a contracted word. And essentially, when Yeshua said, I and the father are one, he's making reference, I'm the stone of Israel. I am so connected to the father, and the father is so connected to me, that's the reason why I'm the shepherd. I'm the one sent by him. Uh, and you can't separate us uh, from it. We are definitely one. 
Again, a reference to the Messiah. From the God of your father who helps you. Who's the great helper of God? The Holy Spirit. He's the great helper and supporter for us. Again, we see the references to the parts of God. It's in the form of three being spoken by Jacob in this blessing over Joseph and his sons who are carrying the messianic theme, the revealing of God uh, to us. All right, as we continue on with the rest of his blessings, then it comes down to in chapter 50 where we're going to have um, a Jacob is going to pass away. And they're going to take Jacob into the land of Israel to do it. And there was a great entourage that came out of Egypt to bury with Pharaoh's blessing. And Joseph led this entourage of many Egyptians and the sons of, of um, Jacob also went. Their children and wives stayed behind, but they went with it. And uh, let me read from you verse 9 of chapter 50. And there also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, uh, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. And then when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it's been named Abel Misraim, which is beyond the Jordan, which means the meadow of mourning or the valley of mourning. There, are, there is evidence from other ancient uh, sources other than the Bible that in which it records that it, in this time frame, there was a, a great company of Egyptians who came back up into all around the land of Israel. And there was this a huge entourage and they were doing, <coughs> pardon me, they were doing this funeral. And even other ancient civilizations make mention of this. And this, what's being described here in chapter 50, is recognized by other nations in the Middle East that this took place. That when Jacob was brought up, it was quite an entourage to bring Jacob back to the land and for him to be buried. And all the force and power of the entire Egyptian nation apparently was present when he came forth. Isn't that fascinating that the land that he went down into, that it was such a blessing even to them that they honored him in his death. Now that's going to be a completely different story when we get to the story of Exodus because it emphatically says there was a new Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph. But right now they're remembering Joseph. They honor him. They honor his father because Joseph essentially preserved Egypt and saved them from the famine that was upon them. And so they were happy to join in in the funeral procession for Joseph's father, uh, Jacob. Now, we get to uh, chapter, er, chapter 50, verse 15. Jacob is now uh, gone. And it says, And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? Isn't it fascinating? His brethren, while they're enjoying the benefits of Egypt and under the leadership of Joseph, they're thinking he's just biding his time until his father passed away. Now he's going to whack us. 
and get it. That's their great fear. You got to you got to see this next verse. This is how people who screwed up in their thinking think. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I don't think that Jacob actually formed that message. I think that was completely fabricated by um, Joseph's brothers. I think they, they knew that Joseph honored their father Jacob, and so they're trying to exploit that relationship to, for, for their own aid. And so when it says that Joseph wept, you know, concerning this matter, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I think Joseph realized that his brothers really did not understand what God had done. That he, they're just subject to what's in front of them and what's going on around them. Listen to the answer that Joseph gives immediately. Verse 18, then his brothers also came and fell down before him. Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? He's saying, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not in God's place to judge you for what you did. And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. They weren't comforted. They, they were fearful. They thought Joseph was going to get the best of them. And Joseph is trying to say to him, I'm on a whole nother plane. If, as far as anybody getting judged, you'll do, take that up with the Lord. But God, don't you see what God has done? God sent me forward by your actions to preserve you, you know, to protect you. And in the same strange sort of way, here's the messianic theme again. Why did God permit the children of Israel to reject the Messiah and to cast him off. That's the only way the sacrifice would have happened and the only way that the Messiah could have been the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, to pass all of Israel from death to life. You know, it's, it's strange how it works. Uh, I'm sure the devil was saying, oh yeah, let's kill him, but he didn't realize by doing so, he was setting up salvation for all of Israel and for the whole world. So that's our portion for this uh, week. Uh, we complete the book of uh, Genesis now. One of the expressions we always share when we complete one of the books of the Torah is we say, be strong, be strong, let us be strengthened one another. Coming from Zechariah 8, 9 through 13. Uh, and that's always a blessing that we speak at the end of the teaching of one of the books of the Torah. I've enjoyed teaching the book of Exodus to you all. Uh, and this time frame, excuse me, the book of Genesis in this time frame. And what I was getting ready to say is I'm looking forward to teaching and sharing the book of Exodus. So join us next Sabbath and we will be going beginning in the book of Exodus. Shalom, everyone.